Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, one of the stories that's not being covered as we focus on police violence and the need for police reform and criminal justice reform. So according to a study by a group called the Treatment Advocacy Center, people with untreated mental illnesses are 16 times more likely to be shot and killed by police. If you're a young black man, that number is even higher. In fact, young black men with mental illnesses are in the single most at-risk category in the nation for fatal police violence. Given these numbers, it seems striking to me that we're not talking more about this as, as, as the nation and the media in particular focuses on the possibility of defunding the police or at least rethinking policing, rethinking the role of non-police responses like the use of mental health experts. So I thought it was a good time now to put some thought into this and to think specifically what journalists can do and how journalists could be thinking about looking at this issue and covering it better and covering it more. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Meg Kissinger, who's the Joan Connor Visiting Professor at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, where I also work. Hello, Meg. Hello. Meg is the author of the upcoming book, While You Were Out, which tells the personal story of her own family's history of mental illness and two siblings she lost to suicide. I'm also joined by Dr. Stephanie Lamel, who's currently the Director of Public Psychiatry Education at Columbia's Department of Psychiatry and was an advisor to Mayor Bill de Blasio's Behavioral Health Task Force for NYC and Rikers Island. Dr. Lamel, thanks for coming on. Sure, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with you, Meg. Do you agree with my basic premise that given the numbers that we started out with, that this problem has been undercovered as we've looked at what's been unfolding over the last couple of months? Of course, absolutely. This is something that I've been really singing from the rafters for a long time. Uh, It's amazing to me, really kind of the hidden epidemic of people with chronic mental illness and their mistreatment in society in general, but especially as it comes to their interaction with police. And I I just want to say right off the bat that, you know, it's the easy narrative would be to say that the cops are just running roughshod. I don't really think that's the case necessarily when it comes to people with chronic mental illness. It, it certainly is in some instances, but I think a lot of it is misunderstanding. And when a lot of people sign up to become a police officer, they don't necessarily uh, want to, or and they certainly are not necessarily equipped to deal with the nuances and the delicacies of uh, people in a psychiatric crisis. I want to get to that in a minute, um, but help me understand from your perspective the the lack of coverage on this. Is it not a problem that they're not experts? out there. There's not a problem that there's not data showing this. Why is it that this just hasn't, doesn't get the amount of journalistic attention, do you think? Well, I think it, it, it's the same reason that we don't write about it in general. So about people's mental illness in general, people are rather loath to talk about it. Um, they're, you know, for so long, uh, people just were fearful or felt we, you can't have a mental health discussion without using the word stigma, <laughs> but, no. but that's true. You know, people are just, they're ashamed of it, which is, which is a shame, but people are, uh, they just are not forthcoming about their psychiatric issues or 
family members who struggle with that. Um, and so it's, it's always been underreported. We you know we didn't used to cover suicides, right? So, right. Um, you know, so a lot of mental illness gets kind of swept under the carpet. And that's just as true in the newsroom as it is in society in general. And, and there's just kind of a tiptoeing around these issues that really does a disservice to the people who are suffering from them. Dr. Lamel, do you have any additional thoughts about the, the lack of coverage? I mean, Meg brings up this very good point that there's just, it, it's part of the stigma in general. But as, as a lot of news organizations are really now focused on how can policing change, this is just something I'm not seeing a lot talk about. Am, am I missing it or is it just not happening yet? No, I, I think you're right that it's just not happening. And I think a lot of it has to do with who has voice and who doesn't have voice and about who's advocating for whom. And when you think about it, people with serious mental illness, these illnesses often hit when people are just becoming young adults. They're leaving home, they're going off mm. to school, they're finishing high school. They're just becoming young adults, um, just when they're becoming independent, just when they're able to vote, just when they sort of begin to realize that they have a public voice. And I think the nature of the illnesses often, and, um, and, and, and the lack of support that people often have when they once they've become ill, is that their voices are not heard. And I think, you know, uh, to Meg's point, there is the stigma in families of talking about family members who have mental illness and people are ashamed to talk about it. So they may not be advocating in the same way they would for other, other um, folks who may be experiencing similar sort of police brutality. There's just not that advocacy. There's not that voice. Um, and, and it's not just around police brutality. It's around a lot of issues concerning mental illness. I think that our society is now much more accepting of depression and anxiety oh. as mm-hmm. mental illnesses that we can talk about. And certainly suicide in the setting of anxiety and depression we can talk about. But we still don't talk about um, psychotic disorders and bipolar disorders in the same way. The, the illnesses that we consider to be more serious um, mental illnesses as opposed to what we call the more common mental illnesses of depression and anxiety. Um, you know, Meg brought up um, the, you know, the, the role of the police and how she wanted to be sort of nuanced about how she, how she talked about the police's role here. What is your sense of the, the amount of training and understanding that police officers have in dealing with people that they encounter with mental illness? This is for Dr. Lamel. You know, I, um, we do try to train the police. Um, we certainly have crisis intervention training that's become mandatory in a lot of areas for the police. But that's not the same as being a clinician. Yeah. And it's not the same as really understanding um, the clinical features um, and presentation that someone who is in, a, in an acute phase of illness, um, how to interact with them. So I, I think it really raises the bigger issue, which is being raised now, is should police even be involved in um, calls for help for people who are having uh, emotional distress or or presenting symptoms of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there isn't a role for police in general in terms of public safety. But when we're talking about people with mental illness, um, I I really don't think that police uh, should be the first responders. They may be the third or fourth responder, third tier that we call in, if the other types of interventions um, that are probably going to be more successful are used first. 
And and I I think that that some some of this starts with the whole perception of people with chronic persistent mental illness as being dangerous. Right. And so the need for safety officers to come with their weapons and their shields or whatever. And whereas, you know, I don't know, nine times out of 10 or more than that, if uh, you can diffuse a situation with, with gentle coaxing, not always, but you know, almost always. And that, that by just by nature of showing up, uh, you know, a very confrontational manner that nothing good comes of that or very little good comes of that. And, you know, this is longstanding in our communities, too, in our society. You know, um, we often depict people with mental illness as sort of these crazed, violent people. Mm-hmm. Look at, you know, one of the things that we've been using more recently in our teaching is, you know, there's a there's a Hal doll advertisement that depicts a black man enraged and sort of running at the picture. Um, and mm-hmm. it's saying, you know, and, and the, I forget the exact caption, but it's something like Hal doll can, you know, can, can calm him down or something like that. You know, mm. so, so we, we have this image, we have this, this societal American societal image of this enraged, usually a man who's crazed mm-hmm. and it's often a man of color. Mm-hmm. And so that creates fear and it feeds into both our fear of, and, and racial biases in addition to, you know, our fear of people with mental illness in general. You know, the other thing that I have cued in uh, over the years um, with some reporting is how we bring people into care. Mm-hmm. So emergency detentions, you, the, somebody acts out, uh, a neighbor or a family member calls the police. And in order, in, in some states, including Wisconsin, where I've done most of my reporting, um, you're required, the police officer must initiate that care. So they have to, they have to put the person in handcuffs and take them to the ER. That that's not a gentle way to initiate a medical care. Yeah, you know this whole topic came. We decided to focus on this because we had a colleague at CGR who has a connection to the family of Maurice Gordon, who was for anybody who's listening doesn't know he died in May after being shot by state troopers along the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey. He was stopped two times for speeding. He mm-hmm grew sort of disoriented, asked to get into the police car once and then again and ended up getting in the driver's seat of the police car. He was pepper sprayed and then shot, shot six times and died. There's a grand jury investigation, which is reviewing the case for criminal charges. The officer at the center of it is on administrative leave with pay. And it turns out that people who knew him, who knew Maurice Gordon, had, had, had expressed concern about him. And we're worried about him. Um, so it seems like this is a case. And, and by the way, this happened a couple of days before George Floyd's death. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And has received, I, I think, quite scant attention overall. Meg, are you familiar with this case in particular? I am only because of you guys. So I had not heard of this. Before, so I would say no until now. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that is... It, Proves the point that you're making is that we a lot of this is not highlighted. We had a case in Milwaukee um, some years ago, a young man sleeping in a in a park, and that was what he was doing. He was sleeping. That was it. And the uh, Starbucks employee called the cops. Anyway, uh, a scuffle ensued, and he was shot and killed. Right. Um, his name is Dontre Hamilton, and um, there was a big outcry here, but it didn't really resonate nationally. 
every once in a while he'll be mentioned in some kind of national platform, but he's he's right up there with a lot of these guys, including George Floyd, people that never should have been shot. Yeah. You know, you both, I find this idea really intriguing about taking money from police budgets and putting them and redirecting them to programs that could help, especially, you know, programs that are staffed with mental health experts. I know that, that this is working in Sweden and I think in the state of Oregon in the U.S. What can you tell us about what they've learned and, and what might be applicable on a national level here? Well, I'm I'm familiar with what was what's going on in Houston, and I uh-huh. actually went down down there and did some ride-alongs with the police there. They have a very innovative program that they began some years ago, born out of a tragedy, born out of officers shooting and killing a guy in a psychotic crisis, and um, they devote an entire division to mental health, and they pair psychologists with the police going out, and they also do a lot of training with the dispatchers, because it all starts with a phone call, right? Yeah. And if that if the dispatcher is is trained well enough to pick up those cues and these the, the ask to describe the behavior, et cetera. Uh, so so it's a it's a fantastic format to pair police officers with psychologists um, and or mental health workers. Uh, the but it's of course a matter of funding and funding priorities. So the fact that this this tragedy um, with George Floyd's death has called for a reexamination of how the police are funded is a great opportunity, I think, to, to rethink way more creative solutions like this. Well, I was just going to say that. I think, I think again, um, you know, we are so, our society, we are so used to calling 911 whenever there's any sort of urgent or crisis situation that that's kind of a reflex even and, somebody is um, um, birding in Central Park. Right, yeah, right, exactly, right. exactly. And so partly what we have to address is that reflex um, and, that, and, and really start to think about what is the role for police. I mean, yes, there are lots of examples around the country of, of, of areas where they have co-respondents, which is what Meg's talking about, who, who go with the police whenever there's a call for what's often called an emotionally disturbed person. Um, and that's fine, but it still doesn't really, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the answer. And I think that, um, I think that when we're, when we're thinking about people who are having a, a, a psychiatric emotional crisis, um, it's not a crime. It's not a crime. And unless a crime has actually mm-hmm. been committed, there may not be a reason to have police there at all. Mm-hmm. And by taking some of the funds that are now being put into funding police activities and reallocating those funds to other first responding teams that may not include police, but Mm -hmm. that would include specially trained clinicians and providers who can basically do anything that a police would do. Um, Because you don't need someone with a gun to restrain someone who's agitated. You don't need someone with a gun to give someone medication. You don't need someone with a gun to de-escalate someone who's who's distraught and upset and, and scared and hurting emotionally. And you don't need someone with a gun to bring someone to a hospital setting or to a crisis program. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear to me that we actually need police involved unless there's actually a crime that's been committed yeah. or enough evidence, yeah. enough evidence to support 
that a crime has been committed. And part of that is on us, both society and providers, that when we call 911, or preferably if we had a different number besides 911 to call, if we had a mental health issue uh, that we needed to have addressed, that we're very clear in our description to the dispatcher and that there'd be some sort of actual triage that um, triage questions that are asked to make sure that the proper level of response um, is mobilized, I think we could avoid a lot of these problems Yeah, and, and yeah. a lot of lives that are lost unnecessarily. People tr- that need help that are being killed or, or, and I mean, we're specifically focusing on people who are being killed by police, but we haven't even, you know, we're not really talking about the people that are incarcerated who yeah. have mental illness, which is, you know, I guess that's better than being killed. But it's certainly not the answer for people who need help. Yeah. And there's so much else that falls in this category. I mean, people who are homeless don't need a police response. Right. People who are making too much noise don't need a police response. I mean, there's so much that could fall in this category. Right. But it would take a level of triage, which we can do. You know, and I think to Meg's point, unfortunately, in a lot of jurisdictions, there is a policy that police have to be the ones to escort or transport someone to a hospital. And that's a policy, so it can be changed. I mean, policies are meant to be, re- you know, to be readdressed and reassessed and, and changed if they're not helping the community. And so we can change those policies. And even if we have to have on some level um, police escorting someone to uh, emergency or crisis services, they don't necessarily have to be handcuffed. You know, so there's a whole lot of trauma that's involved when the police are involved. And and particularly because there are a large number of people who have serious mental illness um, who have been in the criminal justice system, it's re-traumatizing. Even if you're trying to seek help, it's re-traumatizing to be put in handcuffs and put in a police car and brought to a hospital because they've had the same experience when they were brought to the criminal justice system. Yeah. You know, the, this crisis intervention training, which was begun in Memphis, uh, decades ago, and again, right. out of a crisis. Um, and, and it was a, you know, an interesting idea, but it's really being, um, it's really being implemented incorrectly. And the, and the, the um, people who administer it are upset about it, and including in New York City. Uh, and so, you know, you had, you have these occasionally high profile shooting deaths of people who are clearly mentally ill. And then there's a big public outcry which is appropriate, I think, to for police to have better training. So the spirit of that idea is a good one. You know, to to what, who could argue with the fact that all police officers should undergo 40 hours of mental health training? But that's that's not sufficient. That's not going to turn you into an automatic expert or necessarily make you a good on the scene diffuser of a tense situation. And, and then what, what we found in our reporting is that in some ways that backfires and it, it engenders more hostility from the police to people who with, they call them the EDs, you know, emotionally disturbed. And, you know, you hear some real pejorative language thrown around by cops who are resentful of the fact that they have to deal with these guys. Right. Right. You know, you, you both have been watching this issue for a long time, and we now are in a moment where there's, you know, really serious, widespread discussion about uh, about some you know pretty uh, dramatic changes to the way we think about policing. 
do you, what is your level of optimism that this is going to turn into something that sticks and then it won't fade away? Well, I, I, you go ahead, Stephanie. I was just going to say, I am I am optimistic by nature. So my glass is always like not even half full. It's like brimming over. So I'm excited about the, you know, the, the possibility that this will draw attention. And, but, but I know let Stephanie talk because I'm sure she has much more <laughs> realistic. No, I, I think I, I fall into the same category of I, I've actually been called pathologically optimistic. And I, and I take that as a compliment. I take that as a compliment. But, you know, as they say, never let a good crisis go by untouched. And yeah. so I think right now we have a double crisis. You know, we have um, we have sort of the the political unrest and the and the and the awakening and the, and the uh, awareness now of systemic uh, racism and how that's impacting our society. And I think we can't talk about police and the criminal justice system without talking about the fact that um, people of color, particularly men of color, are overrepresented in that. And clearly, when we're talking about people with serious mental illness who end up in the criminal justice system or killed by police, uh, minorities are overrepresented there as well. So I think for, for both reasons, both because we're looking at the role that police serve in terms of public safety, and when we look at racism and systemic racism and how our policies contribute to that, I think the time is now to act on this. And so I'm hopeful that, that, this, that the momentum will not die down and that we have to all be proactive in making these changes take place because they're not going to just happen unless we're actively involved. Absolutely. And, and, and by we, you know, that means uh, journalists uh, writing these stories. It means physicians who are on the ground treating these folks. And it means people who are struggling with mental illness themselves. Absolutely. Speaking up and advocating for themselves. And this is such a great frustration that I've always had watching this community just be pulverized. And it's, I just think that there's so much that can be learned from both the Black Lives Movement and what happened, you know, with the AIDS activists in the 80s, you know, there's great hope if we can turn some of that around, you know, I, I hope that, that the rights for people with chronic mental illness will expand as well. And I would just add to that, though, that we have to remember that sometimes the people who are the victims don't, are not heard. And so, yes, we should include the victim's voice and we should encourage the victim's voice, but they alone can't be the voice on this. All of us really have to do this. Right. Well, I am not pathologically optimistic, but I'm happy to have you both on it. Um, thank you both so much for coming on and talking about this. Sure. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much. We should do this more. You can read more about all of this and the debate about policing and about police brutality and about where we are going and what, what some of these proposals are on CJR.org and really about the coverage of them and how journalism is doing in response to this moment. You can also subscribe to our daily email, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.